It's a podcast about art. It's a podcast about art. It's a podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a podcast about art. Welcome back, listeners, to Art Matters, the podcast for artists. I'm your host, Isaac Wexlerman. This week, I have a conversation with New Zealand-based artist Michael Greaves. Michael and I met, I believe, on an artist residency years and years ago, and we've kept in touch. I've really been looking forward to having him on this podcast because Michael has been at this a little bit longer than the rest of us. He's a little bit further in his career. He's been doing it a little bit longer. And I knew that with that extra experience, there would be more advice, more tools and suggestions that he might be able to share to myself and uh, younger artists out there. And Michael did not disappoint. We discussed the ups and downs of his professional art career. We talked about fatherhood. We talked about partnerships. He even shared some of his uh, teaching techniques that he's applied himself in his studio practice to get things going again, to relight the fire. If you have any questions you would like answered on future episodes of Art Matters, please write in to artmatterspodcast at gmail.com and we'll check those out in the future. Now here's my conversation with the artist Michael Greaves. And we're ready to go. We got another episode of Art Matters. Today I'm joined by an old friend, Michael Greaves, who's coming to us all the way from New Zealand. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing, Isaac? Nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to see you too. Uh, as we were talking before uh, the episode started, it's been quite a while. You and I first met on a, a residency in Berlin uh which was 2012 2013 mm-hmm. yeah so it's been a bit uh but we have stayed in touch through instagram and it's been great kind of um staying abreast of what you've been doing uh your paintings and um yeah it's just great to have you on the on the episode thanks for joining me yeah well, thanks for reaching out it's uh it's really nice to catch up again how i want to start is by saying that um when i met you and Currently, um, you've been at this about 10 years longer, uh, give or take, uh, than I have. You know, I've been in this game for a while, and I think you've got at least 10 years on me. And a lot of the artists that I've had on Art Matters so far have been uh, around my stage in their career. Like, you know, they've been at it about the same amount of time. So the next couple, well, the first couple of questions I have kind of surround that point um first one can you speak to the differences uh between being the artist you are today compared to the artist you were 10 years ago does anything come to mind for that uh jarring differences or subtle differences yeah i i I suppose it's it's more than that um yeah i've been in it a little bit longer than than i suppose 10 years before you without giving Mm. away my age i've been making I've been making paintings now for 30 years. Hmm. 30. Okay, and, I've been, okay. and I've been showing for 30 years, uh, hmm. but geographically in a different place. So I suppose this, there's a slowness of shift um, hmm. that's occurred. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I could think about in, in the change from 10 years till now is the speed at, of which we receive information and the connectivity between between um, that that sort of information gathering. Oh yeah, Huge I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like my 
my vintage was all about the library and monographs. Mm. And now it's all about what's in your hand. Um, in terms of developing or uh, um, rationalizing an art practice, I suppose. Hmm. Being overwhelmed, essentially, by images. You feel overwhelmed over the last, I don't know, since that shift happened, I guess, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah I suppose. It's the, the speed at which I receive what's going on internationally or globally or within my own backyard is just so much more instantaneous than it ever was before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about that uh, internationally? Um, uh, you're based in New Zealand. We met in Berlin. I know you 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 do residencies and you travel around a bit, but I'm I'm curious about, um, I guess your take on, you know, besides that sort of globalism, kind of the overwhelming um, uh, increase in images and uh, materials that are we're all inundated with. When you come down to it, how's your, um, how has your relationship with the art world changed? Uh, you could also say the art market, but less interested in, um, you know, sales and, and whatnot. But if we were to look back at Michael as a younger artist, did you have any um, uh, ideas that have shifted since then about how the art world is and how it uh, could be um, compared to now? Yeah, well, the, for me, primarily the gallery models changed um, like quite significantly. Um, and because of this, I don't know, the, the population size and scale of New Zealand and it's also geographical scale. Uh, you know, we're a, a country of 5 million people, but we take up half the size of Europe in terms of land area. Mm -hmm. Um and we're quite provincial as well. There's little pockets of of things that are going on. So even within the country that I live in, um, there's vast differences between the North and the South Island. I live in the South Island, which is uh, right down the bottom of the country. Um, yeah. I suppose if I w walked out to the beach and I looked east, the next thing I'd see would be Argentina, if I could see that far. And then if I look south, it would be Antarctica. So it's... um. We're we're pretty isolated in this in this neck of the woods, hmm. and I I I suppose the 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 differences in the that's that's most important uh, to me if I think about your question holistically hmm. is um, the way at which I engage with um, with making. Uh, okay. Yeah. Trying to trying to decipher what's most important. But I think sometimes the most important thing is, is our, is our isolation um, in, this, in this neck of the woods. There's, there's a sense of looking outward um, all the time from, from the history of, of making in, in New Zealand and the yeah. history of, uh, of makers in New Zealand. But at the same time, there's, a seep, so there's this, like, this deep sense of appreciation of this isolation at the same, you know, in the same, same respect. I don't know if I've answered your question a hundred percent. No, I, I think that's te tease it. Yeah, tease it out a little bit more because there's this. Um, there's something about being stuck, which mm -hmm. is really really important to living in this country. Well, to to dig into it a bit, uh, a bit further, it's interesting because how you just described living in the South Island of New Zealand sounds like how many artists look at the studio 
mm. situation, you know, the art practice itself, right? You are, um, you're always torn between uh, accepting and kind of thriving in the isolation that the studio brings. Mm. And the maybe the the real need or perhaps the manufactured need to be as um, outside of that as possible to be, uh, well, on social media or to be just learning or interacting or exploring, uh, which mm. all takes you outside of the studio. So I guess I can appreciate the isolation, isolation that you feel, um, but I'm curious... Um, do you feel that urge to, I don't know, explore like you used to? Like, again, we met in Berlin. Are you still doing residencies? Do you think that that kind of uh, getting that sort of international experience yeah. and, and being like boots on the ground is still very important for you? Yeah, that's really that, that is really key, Isaac. Um, uh, the residency, the residency program or the, the ability to, to uh, undertake those residencies uh in Europe is is quite is quite limited uh, from New Zealand. There's a there's a fundamental difference in economy um, to travel to a country where your dollar buys uh, fifty cents hmm. or fifty seven cents is is it's quite financially uh, disadvantageous um, to to travel and to go. Um, so it's not it's not ex, you know it's not always accessible. Understood. Um, and also just the, 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 the sheer distance. You have to travel, you know, two days essentially to get from one side to the other. But it's it's so very, very important. Um, I talked a little bit before about uh, the, my old school nature of, of, of books and mm-hmm. monographs. Um, we, as a collective uh, group of painters... Um, here in here in New Zealand, uh, we have a really there's a there's a strong connection between a group of people that we all went through art school together, and we still we still t- stay in touch with each other. I share a studio space with two guys that I went through art school with in the nineties, hmm. um, and they're you know still making, um, still producing. Um, one of them you've met, Pete. He's arrived back from Berlin. He's living in in New Zealand now for oh, really? the time he's being back. with his family. That's yeah, cool. yeah. He's he's living. He's been living here for a year. So so I'm sharing studios with Pete and another guy, another close friend of mine, Sam. Huh. Um, and we would um, we would see what we would see in a book, and the book had already gone through some sort of filtration process. There's a you know essentially it's been selected by a group of people of peers. It's been um, it's been uh, critiqued or judged or, or given a, a validity because it's been put in a printed page and then it's been sent out to libraries all around the world. And we right. had a, a you know we had a limited uh, relationship to what we could see and how we could engage with work. You mean physically, like physically, or yeah, like galleries, yeah, physical, okay. oh, yeah, physic- yeah, hundred um, percent. Mm. Very few shows, apart from the blockbusters, would arrive in New Zealand. Um, and if they did, they would only go to one of the, the major centers, essentially. So you'd always have to be traveling. And it almost costs the same amount of money to travel to Auckland from New Zealand as it does to, uh, from Dunedin as it does to travel to Australia. So it's, it's quite a, wow. you know, a difficult situation. Hmm. You receive these images, they're, medi- they're mediated, they're peer reviewed, they come in a glossy format, um, they're very flat, they're all of a single size. Yeah. And I think that really, um, a really, impacts on the way that you address painting as a, as a medium. Hmm. And so traveling to 
the traveling to Europe, um, that's where I've primarily spent my time. Um, the first thing that really overwhelms you and changes the way that you approach making, I suppose, is the physicality of, of the surface of the work and the scale of the work that you see. I still have a, a vivid memory of walking into the bar, bar, Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, mm. um, having enjoyed Daniel Richter's work in books for years and years and years and being affronted uh, by turning the corner and seeing one of his large paintings. Sure. Um, the physicality just you know, completely shifted um, uh, my scales, my view. I reflected on that and went, oh, like, you know, if a second year of mine handed in that, I'd be disappointed with the surface because the surface was treated in such a, a diabolical way. But it was it's just that viscerality of seeing the painting and that way really, really shifts shifts your focus. Um, so that isolation of being in, in New Zealand is very real. Um, it's 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 imposed by a number of different ways, but you you're so thirsty when you do see the work in in uh, in, in the flesh, and it's very difficult to tell. There's a cr- different sort of criticality that you need um, to look at work that uh, is in the format of an iPhone or a, or a tablet or something. I was I was going to ask because uh, mm. myself, I look back to the days of the monograph. Is like that's where you could see art for real um as high quality as you know uh, second best only to seeing it in person um and i compare that in my head to instagram and how we all look at paintings as these uh one inch by one inch um you know the, the uh we've removed ourselves even further from physicality but i did want to bring uh this idea up that i had a few years back which was when i delightfully discovered like it, it was just it was like one of those fun moments when a weakness transforms into a strength. When I was thinking about my, uh, I was doing representational work and I would misremember things as I drew them. Um, yeah. You know, very basic things that you see every day. But when uh, you're not using photo reference, it's funny how shapes just, you kind of have to invent. I think I was doing mm. a, drawing a car door or or like modeling the back of a car or something and and what i discovered is that misremembering reality um brings with it this a type of originality and mm-hmm. so misremembering or misunderstanding i think does uh, uh, breed something interesting and i'm thinking the same thing about how you and pete and you guys would look at these books and maybe just misunderstand or just miss um, the physicality of the work. Mm. And maybe that that, um, yeah, you were certainly missing something, but maybe that showed up in your ideas of painting ever after. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Like there's something I've really noticed about work that often gets made um, in New Zealand is the, the, the attention to the detail of the surface and the flatness of the surface. And I think that's uh, a direct um, I think that's a direct response to looking at work on a printed format or a screen. I agree. Um, and there's something so uh, delightful about paint as a process or as a passage. I think Joselitz calls it um, painting as a passage where the mark is as important as what the mark represents. And I think that there's a... And misrepresenting or misremembering, as you said, I think there's a real um, 
there's a real key and a real value to that because painting is is not an index of the thing that you're that you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, the index comes into the the process of you putting the brush or whatever it is that you're putting the paint on the surface. So there's a there's a sense of time that 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 is there, and and that's that's bound up with memory all over the place. And I think there's painting where painting sort of shifts and becomes important. Yeah. No, uh, you're yeah. totally right. Uh, it you get in there and you see it, and you do. Th- the idea of time um, is unavoidable, and I think it's also, um, I mean, I'm a painter, you're a painter, but that's where the romance is, too. So much of the yep. romance is when you get up close to a painting, especially one that you've looked at in books or even on Instagram, and you're lucky enough to have guessed right and to think that and to find that this really is a good painting, and then to be there in front of it and see it, see the marks, smell it. I still remember... Yep. Um, visiting pete wheeler's uh, your friend pete's um studio in berlin and mm. i think i was painting acrylics at the time and i got in there and the smell of the place was just yep. oil just oil caked on it was it was so um <laughs> i mean i never would look back i became an oil painter again at that point because it was just um yeah it's visceral um yep. which which is just another thing i love about painting yeah, for sure. Um, I I remember uh, when I was in London. Uh, God, it would have probably been two thousand fifteen. I'm thinking back to, or two thousand seventeen. It was one of those years, anyways. It was the pre-COVID. Um, there was a, a retrospective of Daniel Richter's at the Carnegie, um, Cam- no, the Camden Arts, the Camden Arts Centre, and it was beautiful because. It combined a bunch of work that he made in the 90s with mm-hmm. a bunch of work that was made really, really recently. Um, and I'd never seen his 90s work in the flesh, and it was like that. You could you could, um, you could, could pull the painting apart in front of you as you For saw sure. it. It was, a, it was an overwhelming, it was a cacophony, it was like this symphony, this, this kind of this everything. But you could focus in on one little tiny part, and you could actually unpack the process of making. Yeah. Later, later that month, I was in in Paris, and I went to um, Thaddeus Repack and saw his new work, the, his most recent work, and the same thing was still there, but it was just it was just kind of uh, uh, combined in a different way. You could still see the maker, mm. and I think that's really important about about painting. And I think there's something that always draws me to painting is that that. It's not the misremembering of something, but it's the way that painting sort of offers a process of, of building an image that is at once concrete, but at the same time um, can crumble in a moment. You know, there's, there's a, it's just there. Sure. I don't, think, I don't think any other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think any other medium kind of offers that, uh, but then again, I'm biased. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, uh, this is just a, uh, a last short question on on the same topic but with how romantic you are uh about painting um uh, is there any cynicism that's come on over these years you have followed you know you have been the transitional artist between how things were and how things are now and i mean you probably might admit i would admit that so much is being is being lost. Uh, we're gaining mm. things too from things like social media and 
Uh, I certainly wouldn't argue that it's all bad, but it's we are removed. Yeah. We're, we're even further removed from all those great things that you just talked about in painting. Yeah. The so. the thing, yeah, I, I this the cynicism that I have um, in in the visual arts is bound up with time, or in painting is bound up with time, and and the time of you know there's several different sites of time, but the this, the time of circulation, mm. which is the relationship between the viewer and the and the and the work itself, sure. And um, there's a there's a constant feeling of publish or die in academia, and there's also a constant um, that I'm aware of or or feeling of if you didn't tweet about it, you're dead, mm. um, or if you don't exist in social media, people forget about you. Yeah. as the next thing so quickly, and there's a like an like a little story that I I talk to um, talk to my students about in terms of uh, approaching approaching a painting and the kick in the guts that you get aesthetically from it um, scale all that sort of stuff before you start asking the questions and the 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 story kind of goes like this I said now we have a we have a really difficult um, relationship with uh, the transference of information today and painting is information. Uh, you make a show, um, you enter into the process of showing the work either uh, on Instagram or social media or your website or what have you. And a person who approaches that work can have a a, a response, a relationship to that, into their own world, into their own life. They can think about what it is that you've done just from the image that you've shown. Um, they can think about how it makes them feel emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, they can think about how it relates to their understanding of of painting if they follow that, so on and so forth. And they can take that with them and talk to their friends about it who then can go and look at it and they can have a conversation amongst themselves. Nothing's changed hands mm-hmm. at all. But if you've, say, for example, you've been invited to a wedding and you have to wear a different set of clothes that's not the normal set of clothes that you wear during the day. Sure, you can go to a, 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 a shop and you can try on a suit or you can wear a dress or do whatever. You can look at yourself in the mirror and you can go, hey, I look fantastic. But in order to activate that object in the space that it was intended to, you have to hand some cash over either to hire it or to buy it hmm. and then and then wear it in that, in that situation. It's not the same as what we're doing these days with with artwork and the and the way that we share artwork uh, via social media or the web, where mm-hmm. the artwork can exist as an image and have its transformational purpose there in space, but then never get actuated in its in its entirety for that person to buy it or take it or use it in the space that it's supposed to. Does that um, make sense? It's like yeah. it's a it's a roundabout sort of idea. So. Um, in terms of talking and talking to my my students about that, I, there's a there's a a vast difference that I find between the the cultural industries and the creative industries. And we yeah. sit essentially, well, I sit because I've been doing it for thirty years in the cultural industries. I make it because I need to, mm. not because I am using it as a transactional basis. But everything is about the transaction these days. That's my cynicism in the art world. Yeah. It's interesting because it's both uh, the way you phrased it, it. It seems like a positive too. I mean, it's like a, 
and this is the argument, yeah, we have more visibility than we've ever had before. And mm. it still works. Like you said, it's um, it, it, your images can get out there and get seen and get discussed and get considered and have mm. impact. And money doesn't have to change hands. So it still has that. Um, in theory, it has that Napster quality, right? It's it's mm. finally it's all out there. But yeah, you're you're not wrong. And I've talked a lot about um, the pressure that artists today feel to create a, a branded, uh, unchanging um, mm. piece uh, or series. Um, I've spoken about that with a few different artists on this uh, podcast, and it's. Um, it's contradictory, and I do think it flies in the face of um, the natural tendency for artists to um, explore and challenge each other and to move and to shift. And, mm. um, you know, there's no use it whining about it. You know, we're going to we're going to culturally uh, tease it out and see see where it ends up. Um but yeah, I, I share that cynicism. Yeah, and there's a there's a criterion of excellence that I find uh, as well, and that's down to like a technical prowess of being able to make something look like it it is or look like it should. Um, that I find difficult in uh, in the 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 wider context of art and 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 deciding what is good and what is not. Mm-hmm. If you if you understand, like the you know, Laura Hopman talked about painting in a temporal space with the Forever Now exhibition, which was either widely accepted or criticised. Oh, um, I remember. For, no, for, it was a yeah, yeah. for zombie formalism, um, mm-hmm. which kind of has taken over um, a particular type of visual visual engagement in the arts in the in the last decade. I just remember um, that was my first experience with hyper polarizing responses to something. I yeah. think I had just gotten to New York and people's like vitriol or praise for that were just, you know, I've seen it many times since, of course, but I, I, um, that show hold, holds a special place in my, in my I, heart. I love, I love how the guy, uh, one guy who's, uh, done his little YouTube clip on visiting the show when it went up. It's like, oh, here's Oscar Murillo. You know, he's like the flipper of art. And it's, it's just such a beautiful um, conversation to have. It's like yeah. somebody so so easily uh, distinguishes or puts something in a particular place yeah. because it's related to these other things which are quantifiable, which comes, like, for me, I talk about, like, a technical ability to make something look like it should often has a criterion of excellence over something that is actually really really good painting hmm. for all these other reasons and yeah. and i think somehow there's a um there's an ability to uh build community and and exchange exchange ideas uh, understandings of painting so on and so forth digitally because there's just there's so many more avenues for it but there's also a kind of a, a focusing or a funneling down to what's accepted and what's not based upon likes or or perceived excellence. Yeah, which isn't historically new, right? I mean, no, it's always, no. there's always either get picked or, yeah. but, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'll shift uh, tracks here and I'll ask you 
probably a much more personal question, which is um, fatherhood as an artist. I mean, uh, I'm certainly, I'm not a father, but uh, I do understand over the years the the challenges of time management and um, Mm. how every little additional responsibility you take into your life uh has immediate impact on uh yeah on your studio practice and that would be such a big one that i um artists are <laughs> always finding themselves um uh, approaching so being a parent and an artist maybe speak a little bit about how you uh, thought about it beforehand and how you feel about it after Mm. Well, my son is 15 going on 16 now. Mm-hmm. So he's been a part of my life for a long time. And we, there's a, like, there's, we, I suppose we come of a, of a nature of, of family, which is far more prevalent now than it ever was, which is shared parenthood. Um, he lives with his mother for a week and he lives with me for a week. Mm. And it's, it's just been that way ever since he was two and a half, three, I think. Okay. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't make any work for four years after he was born, essentially. For four years? I had no, no studio practice whatsoever for four years because uh-huh. of the impact, the impact of having a child on my time was. It's a big deal. Yeah, I've, um, uh, I've heard of breaks before, but four is one of the longest <laughs> ones I've heard of. Yeah, yeah. 2006 to 2010 wow. was essentially a period of time. I think I made some work in 2008. Um, but yeah, it was, it was essentially four years, but I had a, I had a different, I had a different situation. Um, I was a junior lecturer at that time, uh, in painting. So I was able to live vicariously through my students. I was still right. able to be active in the process of discussing art, solving problems, thinking through projects, so on and so forth. Yeah, of course. But the impact, the impact of, of fatherhood was amazing. Um, would never go back and change anything. Yeah. Um, but at the same, it was, it was, it was quite significant. Huh. They just live, they just live by a different timetable. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not one that cares about anybody else apart from themselves at the first little bit sure. of time. For sure. Yeah. And, and uh, I, yeah, if I look back and I think about it, no, and I and I consider that that whole lifestyle shift because essentially that what it, that's what it was. Um, you're learning everything. Well, this you know, if you're having a if this is your first child, you're learning everything for the oh, first yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And there's no rule book. They don't come with a a, a manual. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely a there's definitely a process of um, of letting go of some of the things that you find really really dear to your life for a, a certain amount of time. Yeah, I mean, mm. I want to analyze that a bit more uh, if you don't mind. Like, yeah, do it, uh, please. Absolutely, the your time is cut to to zero after a kid is born i'm sure but four years without um and i understand you had an outlet which was teaching and working with artists which is still very creative and very 
positive. It, it does fill that void mm. to some extent. But four years, I mean, when I when I step away from painting for a period, if it's a block or if I'm shifting and I'm looking for something, you know, I'll I'll tend to get more and more distraught. You know, as the months tick by, yep. even if I'm, if I'm, I have the other things to focus on. It's just, I can sense, my wife can sense, uh, everyone around me can sense that I just get <laughs> more and more tight. And yep. uh, like, it's, it's something that just builds for me when I'm without it. Did you feel, um, you had this new responsibility, but did you feel that tightening for the four years or did you I have some people might feel relief too. okay, I can I can shirk the, the responsibility of my studio practice for this time and focus on probably something that's even cooler than painting and, you know, these new something new to learn. Yeah, well, I think I think my experience was was quite um, unique to me. I was shifting studio space um, hmm. at that time as well. So I was kind of had everything in storage which gave me uh, like twofold. Hey, I don't actually have any space to make. Um, I actually, no, actually I tell a lie. I've told you a big lie. Hmm. I'm sure it's <laughs> not the first on Art Matters. No, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking. Yeah, uh, I did make um, 2000, uh, yeah, so it was three and a half, three years because um, I'd shifted I shifted making processes hmm. uh, more than anything else. I did stop, 100% stop uh, after he was born um, because, and I did get really tense for the first three or four months, not mm-hmm. only because it was, you know, sleeping and, 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 and dealing with uh, a, a newborn, which was pretty, pretty cool, but um, there was just no time to think about it. And there was no time to put aside to do it, even in the evening, because they don't keep regular hours, man. They don't go to sleep at 6 o'clock and wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning. They wake up every three hours, four hours. So you don't have regular hours to be able to disappear. And if you don't have a studio that's on site, um, you can't disappear out to wherever it is you need to do or do something in that sort of stage. But when he was when he was three years old, I think, three, three and a half years old, um, I was living in a one-bedroom bed sit um, in town, essentially, like in, in the city where I live. Uh, so everything was based on um, needs or necessity. I'd go out for dinner, um, share a bed with my son, essentially for a year, year and a half, mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd put him to sleep at 7.30 and then I'd sit down and make watercolours in mm-hmm. the evening. So just small watercolours. And it was a real transitional moment to the, my making practice. <laughs> um, by changing medium, there was no oil paints. It was it was watercolor and gouache. By changing scale, um, it was really important. It was a really important part of the practice. It just seems so such a long time ago now to think about it. Um, hence why I possibly uh, missed it in the first instance to think about. But yeah, mm-hmm. and that was a really um, that was a really important part of of my process because it was a really experimental um, part as well because I was restricted by so many different things. I had a couple of hours a night. Yeah. I had to resolve. I had to resolve a work. I had to understand its its capacity to be, um, yeah. And and yeah. And then I had that. And then I had a show of those works just before I came to Berlin. I think there was um, there was 
far out, I, I must have had about 40 or 50 watercolours, which I had a one-night one night only pop-up show in a derelict building in, in the city. Sounds yeah, familiar. Put it up, put it up, showed the show, sold three quarters, if not more of the work, took it mm. down the end of the night, and, and we were gone. That was it. It was all over. <laughs> That's cool. And did the work prove to be transitional? Like the when you did um, uh, break your fast and and start again, uh, was that work um, influential yeah. for what happened? Yeah, next? very, very influential. Yeah, hmm. extremely influential. Um, my work's always been my work's always been tied up, you know, historically between re- representation and abstraction, I suppose. <laughs> um, but it was really it was really uh, important that period of time and it was a real transitional shift in, mm. in the painting process yeah that's cool I, I like and I'm happy we pulled that answer out further because four years without painting just sounds uh, terrifying and but what I, I love is there's that cherry in the middle which is yeah <laughs> you do find a little bit of um, you know an idea like that shock of an idea in the middle of an otherwise very um, new and possibly uh, uncomfortable, if if not very exciting situation. So I, I dig that. Uh, all right. We've talked about romance in painting, if you don't mind. Uh, romance as an artist. Uh, how do you – do you have any advice for artists who are – getting serious about or know they're serious about their art careers but start getting serious about a partner um (laughs) is there any any sage words of wisdom towards um i don't know your experiences or what you found to be uh beneficial or things to avoid when it comes to uh, artists and partnership yeah, for sure. Um, I just watched Nick Cave's latest film that he uh, shot around the making of the album Carnage hmm. on its release date here, and he said something really interesting halfway through that film. He said, you know, I was always identified as, you know, Nick Cage the musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of realized over time that it's more of I am, you know, I'm a man, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a citizen who happens to make music. Hmm. And I think that's I think that's really important to remember um when you when you hook up with somebody, uh hmm. become serious with somebody, marry someone. Um my wife and I are just about to celebrate our 11th year, our 11th wedding anniversary. And she's a creative person, but she's not an artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason why we're still together. <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I, I feel that you need, to have, you need to have different parts of your life. Um, there needs to be a separation somehow between those different parts of your life. I, I often look and I see friends who have, who have, um, who have, partnered up with somebody who's also in the creative in the creative fields mm-hmm. um, and there's always a tension between who if anything who is going to sacrifice their drive oh yeah for for the relationship 
Yeah, it's a pervasive um, question. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I I have interlocutors. I have lots of friends who are makers. Mm-hmm. I have lots of friends who um, think deeply about the process that we have very, very a very connected relationship with. I have with them, but mm-hmm. it's specific to the process. Whereas when I go home at night, we talk about food and we talk about other things than art. We don't really have conversations about art, although she is, to me, my best show hanger in the world. Mm. I just had a show recently and, and I spent an afternoon with the gallerist um, thinking about where the work was going to be and we kind of arrived at a at a potential hang. And I said, hang on a second, I need to bring my wife in. And mm-hmm. I brought it in and she goes, no, that work needs to shift there, that needs to move there. And we put it around, it's like, perfect. Yeah, that's it. So you you know there we don't we don't have a we don't have a creative um, hierarchy uh, yeah. in the in the relationship, but she's she's uh, got an she, eye. She, you know, yeah, well, she's the perfect foil for my yeah. um, for my issues and my problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great. I, I mean, and I like the I think it's great advice that you began with about uh, being able to. Um, self-identify as more than just the thing mm. you do you know an artist i think yeah. that uh, uh me in my 20s and to some extent me now like i it is difficult to make those separations if you're not consciously uh trying and 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 then it's so healthy to get to that point because mm. all of a sudden then a bad day in the studio does not mean everything comes crashing down if you've got a few other identifiers where you say well I'm a pretty good partner. The painting yeah. sucks today, but I'm, you know, you have those things. It's a healthier way to be for sure. And the and the other good thing that comes as well is they obviously have an interest in what it is that you do mm-hmm. um, because that's part of the full package that they arrive at. Sure. But they also ask the difficult questions um, that you need, that you need to try and unpack what it is that you do as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not a yes person. Um, yeah. They can be they can be savage at times. Like I, I know having conversations with my other friends, it's like it's like oh my wife never ever ever says that I'm doing anything okay. It's like you know it's like you do this and it's like yeah, but no, nah, it's not working. It's not right. And it like it really kind of kills me when I hear that. And then it's not only three, four, five weeks away that I that I recognise that. It's really important for somebody to not understand what it is that you do because if they don't understand it, then there's probably a high likelihood that the majority of the population aren't going to understand it as well sure. because they're not so close closely aligned with you. So it's a good sounding it's a good sounding stick as well, and they keep you honest. Um, so keep they so keep you honest. Why are you doing that? Why do you want to spend that much money on this? Hmm. What is the importance of buying that? Why do you need that? And it's like, so you kind of have to justify it. And through justifying it, you decide whether or not it's important to what it is or it's just some fancy that's never going to go anywhere. Um, (laughs) You know. I'd ask you now to steel man the case for uh, the artist flying solo. And if Mm. you are a dedicated creative, I mean, personally, I can talk endlessly about the benefits that I find being in a partnership with someone um, and how it's positively affected my my work, um, not without its challenges, duh. But yeah, I'm just curious if you could, because 
I think inherently artists, practicing artists come with a, a huge amount of ego and mm. self uh, centeredness that is usually a superpower um, that makes us do what we do and believe that uh, there's a reason why we're doing it. You know, mm. that's that's all there's vanity in there. And there's a lot of things that sound negative, but do power the vehicle. So I'm wondering if for shits and giggles, if you could look at it from <laughs> the other perspective and and see any benefits um, of just being on your own uh, and, and maybe reasons why it would never work. Yeah. You know, there are there are many benefits of 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 being that selfish selfish individual i don't think romance is always excluded from that but i think it's yeah. i think it can always it, it will be um feisty or spicy i think m- more often than not um there's a or there's a sense of an ability of of assuring those responsibilities that will always be around with you mm-hmm. uh having to choose this or that um, there's a sense of creative freedom that will come with uh, with having no strings attached, essentially. Um, and I can see a, I can see a huge positive and a huge benefit in that because the art the art world and the art market uh, per se is one about networks and relationships beyond one. Yeah. And so if you don't have if you don't have any uh, solid um, you don't have anything tying you down essentially Hmm. you can react and respond faster to where you need to be how you need to practice what you need to prioritize things are still fluid yeah 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 Yeah. and god I'd, I'd look at it I'd hate that because it would just be perpetually 17 hmm you know, yeah. um, there's a point in time. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I have an experience of of shifting from a long term relationship to being single mid career, hmm. and understanding how that changed my perspective on life. All of a sudden, you were the you were the new person, um, and there was lots of really interesting things to do and people to see and things to talk about. And so on mm. and so forth. But then you recognize quite quickly that, um, I don't know, in my experience, that it was a cycle. It's like, uh, call it Berlin in the summertime. Let's talk about that. So Berlin in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So there's the summer crowd that arrive in Berlin. A lot of them are US, US people coming across to study or to do whatever, or other people come from other countries. And they arrive in summertime in Berlin. Berlin in summertime is the most beautiful place. Uh, you get a bicycle, you ride from sunrise to sunset, you stop at cafes, bars, galleries, parks, whatever it is you want to do. And it's such an accessible city and there's a party happening anywhere that you can join into. And people are excited because there's all these new people from all these different places. Hmm. And then winter happens and half the people go, holy shit, this is really cold and they leave and they find somewhere else, there's some person that stays. And then summer happens again and there's a whole bunch of new people that come in and it's party time again. And then after four or five of these winter-summer cycles, you've whittled it down to those people that are still there Uh and they're just the same as they were 
all those seven cycles ago. And it's mm. it's like that, I think. You know, mm. there's only so much you can get excited about every time the cycle comes around. I I like the uh the metaphor. It's <laughs> well, you've experienced it, man. Yeah. Berlin for sure. in the summertime. Well yeah. no, actually no no no. I, I was thinking about it while you while you told the story. I I think my entire experience in Berlin was wintertime. I think oh, right, did, did you, you, you the, you came in September, didn't you? I did, I did. And then I overstayed oh, my visa and just continued there because I was like, this winter in Berlin, it's it's just perfect. So, I, you know, if I liked it then, if I liked it in December, I... Uh, Dude, man, I it was like back. a se- September. Like there was a day in... There, yeah, there was a day in September. I've always I've always been in Berlin summertime. I'm that Berlin summer man, I suppose, because um, <laughs> sure. I always escape winter in New Zealand and go to the European summer. Huh. Um it's our break in semester, so I can get away for uh, some time. And it's often the time where a lot of interesting things are happening at schools or or places abroad. So it kind of works sure. out. But there was a day. There was a day in September. I can remember it vividly. Waking up one morning, it was twenty two degrees. Waking up the next morning, it was twelve, and it never stopped. It just shifted ten degrees overnight. And that was that was my time to go. How it's time to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're talking to a guy that just moved to Detroit, so yeah. I, I think how's that? You know, we, how's that wintry blast that comes down your way, man? You know, we moved here just like Berlin. We moved here in November, so we yeah. didn't think the summer was ever going to come. Like it just yeah. it hit and it hit hard. The, coming back to the Midwest <laughs> has been a struggle, but yeah, enough. I only that. have a I only have experience in uh, of the U.S. and the. You know, up in Portland area and, and Vancouver, like that sort of area, uh, Canada, Portland, that sort of top end of that kind of part of the country, and hmm. seemed pretty nice to me, man. But I can imagine some of the places in that vast expanse of of the US would get extremely cold. It does, but the summers are beautiful, so we're yeah we're happy again. <laughs> um, we've kind of already covered this, but I'd like to attach this question um, here. And it was just something that I, I was thinking of uh, leading up to this conversation when what I think of as the art world, the contemporary art world, it's embarrassing how U.S. and mm. U.K. centric it is. I mean, really, U.K. and U.S. Uh, uh, beyond that, beyond my scope, which is what I think the art world is. I am at least wise enough to know this little, this little, uh, the little portion that I am actually engaging with. And coming from New Zealand, uh, and just, I mean, you grew up on monographs and you are connected with social media. I'm curious if you find yourself more, well, first, US and UK centric, because you're a painter and there's a lot of painting happen, happening there, or if you, are much more inundated with the New Zealand uh, art world, and if you think that that is the art world, or if you have a wider scope in general. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and and I did have a um, obviously I had a look over the the potential of questions that you were going to talk about mm-hmm. in this this uh, forum, and I had a th- I had a good think about it. You know, we we were always US centric. Um, Growing up, so there's a there's a real deep uh, relationship with the U.S. and New Zealand uh, art history, 
we're always 20 years or 30 years behind um, due to the fact of, of dissemination of information that was going on. We'd always receive, uh, and I talk about we, I'm talking about generally the New Zealand art scene as I was growing up, uh, was influenced by, you know, the 60s and 70s uh, makers here in New Zealand who were influenced by the post-war painters in the U.S., and we'd always received that information via black and white copy that would come in the magazines or so on and so forth. So it was it was always distinctly packaged in a particular way. Um, there was a romanticism about that post-war period of the New York school of painters that was a kind of a kind of uh, persisted in every conversation about making. There was always the. Right. There's always the challenge around the the idea of abstraction. Um, later, I became more aware of the German painters, uh, and that was a really a really important um, sort of shift or transition for me. And now I think the art world that I look at or I engage in a lot has been Eurocentric. Has been situated in Europe or the UK, uh, somewhat in the US, but for, for figurative, for figurative uh, considerations more for the US. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's always been this, this, external, this outward-looking focus um, for me as a painter because the history of, of New Zealand art or New Zealand making was really... Um, uh, influenced by theoretical uh, concerns that occurred in the postmodern era around the 1980s, uh, identity politics, and moving forward now, gender and decolonization um, considerations. Yeah, and and there's a sense of um, there was a sense of shifting from the physical act of making to the conceptual process of thinking through making. Uh, that was really massive here in New Zealand in the 80s and 90s. And as a painter, we were kind of left out of that conversation. Uh, you know, the painting was dead yeah. uh, conversation that continually rears its ugly head all the time. If it was dead, why well, there's still so many people doing it? Is the, the you know the, the 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 simplistic answer to it, but it doesn't really mean that. Um, so we we would look abroad and we would look out but there's a sense of you know you say we're we're physically connected um or we're connected through social media or connected through the internet and so on and so forth there's a sense that's become more apparent in in the recent years of putting blinkers on and actually blinkering yourself shutting yourself off from those kinds of things and just working in the studio Hmm. um removing those kind of external influences kind of turning that stuff off because it's it, it it's 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 too much sure so in a nutshell yes i do look outward um i'm much more focused on the european process of making um but there's a sense of me that's shifting towards almost shutting that off and looking inward um (laughs) now because if i continue to look outward then i'll never make anything Yeah, of course. You, you know, uh, it has to either be intermittent or cut off entirely. You don't, mm. you can't have too many um, other artists in the studio with you, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, they they start telling you to do too many different things. Yeah. What's your? How's your relationship with art history 
changed, Michael, over the years. Like, I think our first conversations late into the night were about art history and mm. cool artists of the 20th century and before. And mm. I'm just wondering, is that something, have you asked those artists to leave the studio too? Or are you more inundated than ever with uh, your favorites, not so much contemporary, but of the past? Are they still in there? Yeah, well, Philip Philip Gustin um, is, a, is like a key figure to me and you understand philip custon i'm sure i do he was he was he was very uh concerned with painting of the quattrocento as well as painting of the more recent times of when he was alive uh he was very interested in piero della francesca and there's a like there's two particular parts of the world that are really important or have been really important to me as a painter and that is the the italian quattrocento and then the early part of the 20th century in cubism Mm mm-hmm which is understandable. They're kind of like touchstones. But um, Gustin and Cage were having a conversation and uh, and they were talking about whether or not, you know, anything was any good, I think, or how to make a painting properly. I can't remember exactly the, the words, and I'll paraphrase here, but Gustin turned around and says, you know, when you start a painting, when you start a work, everybody's in the studio with you. Your past loves, your your problems, your... Uh, idiosyncrasies and I'm paraphrasing here your thoughts and processes are all there with you and one by one they leave yeah. and if you're really lucky you leave too and sure. uh, at the end of the painting you leave mind. too and it's just so it's just so um, it just kind of fits so perfectly uh, yeah. with my relationship with art history and theory is that when I start because of what I do um, mm-hmm. when I start it's always so concerned and, and tied up in the process of having conversations with other things that are in my world or in my life. And as the painting operates, one by one they leave. I think Julian Schnabel said something really interesting as well along those lines. He said, you know, when, you know, in his, in his brutish sort of male, male testosterone filled uh, way that, oh, that Julian Schnabel is, which is kind of beautiful as well as it's um, <laughs> controversial. He goes, painting's like going to war you lay out the the battle scene, you know, you you plan your strategies and you start working and halfway through that painting starts fighting back. Hmm. And if you don't listen to it, you can, you know, bullishly move through it. You'll end up with something that might work or might not, but you really kind of need to listen to that process and it becomes a co-construction. Yeah. And the painting will tell you what it needs and you've got to follow along with that. And I think that's my relationship with art history. Hmm. as it provides a foundation or a basis for me to start asking questions. But as the painting unfolds, it kind of needs to do what it does. Yeah, that's a good answer. Hmm. I, I I respond to it. And I, I think I'd just add that uh, it's lines like those, <laughs> Schnabel and Gustin, that's mostly what I've been getting. It's how my um, influence has shifted it, because it's shifted away from the pictorial visual elements that these artists brought into the world Mm. and more uh, what I've been focusing on lately is how they talked about their studio practice and how they, Mm. I mean, I've just been, it's part of the origin story of this podcast. Like uh, I can't find anything more thrilling than how artists talk about, you know, not even the technical, but the philosophical and how they um, get from point A to point B. So I, yeah, I love those lines. And, uh, yeah. Um, 
Michael, tell me about a decision, big or small, uh, that has happened uh, or that has had a dramatic lasting effect on your life as an artist. Anything come to mind? Yeah. Uh, we kind of had a little conversation about this prior to the start of the podcast. Um, I made the decision to completely stop doing what it was that I was doing uh, mid, mid-cycle. Yeah, I um, do want to hear more about this. Yeah, so in the uh, I started I started showing work with a gallery when I was still at high school. I think I was fifteen or sixteen years old when a gallery came and um, and talked to me and wanted to represent my my work. Um, at that stage, I just I just been introduced to a a, a preeminent um, representational painter uh, in New Zealand uh, who's still. Um, kind of seen at the forefront of what it is that he's doing. Hmm. And he took me under his wing and taught me how to paint during a school holidays. Uh, so I spent like 8.30 in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon learning about transparency and opacity, painting, how to construct and compose an image. And he cool. gave me my first introductions to European artists because prior to that, art was just something I did at school. And so I took on. I, I knew. I knew at that stage. Then I wanted to be a painter, and so I took on a, a process of of learning how to make paintings. And I and I developed quite quickly in that. And my work started selling. And I'd well, I was selling a lot of work. Uh, I think it was my third year of art school, just before I ended. I was selling a lot of work. So there was a there was a period of maybe five years between those two parts of the story, and the work that I was finishing in the studio would not even be dry um, before the dealer would come and say, "Okay, that's going to San Francisco, or this is going to Canberra, or this is going to London, or to whatever." And it was great, you know, money was good, mm-hmm. but I never saw the work because it was finished and it was out of my studio straight away. And so every time I made a painting, I was trying to make the painting of the work that I had seen before that I was trying to work through. So I was continually making the same work to try and understand why it was that that work was so important to me. Hmm. And it just became Groundhog Day, essentially. Um, Or uh, Berlin Summer, huh? Or Berlin Summer, exactly. And and you get to the stage where somebody would say, oh, can I have a work that's a bit more blue? Or can I have a work that's a bit more brown? And I was like, what am I doing this for? You know, where is the end in this? What is this? How is this, you know, feeding me as a person? I know I can do that. And so I decided to change overnight. Essentially, I decided, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make a work that I want to. I think we talked about this a little bit mm-hmm. with what you're experiencing at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I had a big show in a city outside of the city I live in. Um, that the gallerist was all excited about having these works that were going to be like the works that I was making. And they arrived and they were, they were along the same lines, but they were different. Mm-hmm. And I just decided that I couldn't do it anymore. It was just not, it was just not feeding me as a, as a maker. And so I gave up, I stopped, I stopped painting completely. Um, 
I know this. There's the first. The first period. The second period was when I had a child. The first period I stopped making ma- making completely. It was probably about a year or a year and a half that I sure. that I stopped. Um, Sorry, were you using that time uh, searching for the next thing, or was it really just a just a break? Just it was a break. Stop. Yeah, it was a stop. It was it was being able to give myself the permission to just do something that I wanted to do rather right. than something that I was expected to do. Before you go on uh, to address that first part, why didn't you feel like you had that you could reformat or restructure uh, the situation you were in? You you were in a situation that many of us would like to be in with that amount of sales happening, that mm. amount of interest. But you felt pressured to, I have to assume, to keep getting the work out the door. I think a lot of artists miss this step, which is why I'm asking that that maybe there was a way to take back the power and not feel so beholden on whoever it is that's coming to you wanting a painting where you could step back and say, no one gets a painting for six months until I am ready for it. You know, really standing firm with that. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't have that sort of level of maturity then. I was still so young. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that, I think that now that's the decision that I would make. Sure, and I think that's the that's a that's a difficult decision to make uh, in terms of in in terms of a a, you know a painter's career. For me, the way to take the power back was just to um, just to withdraw completely because that's all I knew about. I suppose you know that's a that's a young person's decision to make. I just think I was maybe eighteen or nineteen years Mm. old um, when this when this happened. That was that was my that was my. that was my consideration. That was my concern. Sure. Um, I, if I had a, if I had the opportunity to do it with what I knew now, that's probably what I would have done. Is just mm-hmm. to 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 cut back. But at the same time, uh, I was I was really aware and and quite concerned about painting myself into a corner. Yeah. And and painting myself into an expectation loop, yeah. where people know you for only one thing. Um, and it's become a it's become a uh, a, a re- reoccurring instance throughout the, my career as a painter. If you look back through the body of work that I've made, I continually shift and change. And I always thought, young in the younger days, I always thought that that was uh, um, a problem. Mm-hmm. But now that I reflect upon it, it's not. I don't see it as an issue at, at all because when I look at the trajectory of my career as a painter i'm still asking the same questions i was asking when i was 18 i'm just manifesting them in a different way sure and i i think that you recognize that through a hindsight you you recognize that through understanding the 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 process of what it is that you do as a painter as as a maker Mm -hmm. because you're essentially you're essentially making another thing for the world all the time it's not a reference or a relationship or a, a you know uh something that's you know here that here this is this way and here this is that way it's like here's something else and you're always making that other thing so i i think yeah if you can give yourself like if i went back again i would give myself that that uh permission to just to say right i'm going to sit back and and work through this process and i'm going to re-emerge in that way and i i I suppose, yeah, well, you think about the Marlborough show, that 
it happened with with Gustin, you know. Mm. Dude, you had everything still. I, was, I can't remember who it was who said it. Um, dude, you had everything so so together. Why'd you go and fuck it up for all of us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the, the the change overnight. It wasn't really a change overnight. It was a change over a year. But right. I think I think that there's a I think that there's a real a real worry when you, your your career or the work that you make is precarious that you are reliant upon somebody else's validation in terms of the physical things that you need to live. Yeah. I need money to pay for my rent. I need money to buy materials. I need money to do this. You're kind of physically reliant upon making something that somebody will covet and want to have uh, mm-hmm. for themselves. And that's tied up in a whole bunch of things. It's not just in the the, the painting and the the way that somebody would, you know, engage with the work that's in front of them. It's a whole bunch of other um, references in society of, you know, luxury or other things that people ascribe to the process of owning a unique piece of work, which painting usually is, mm-hmm. um, that it becomes really, you become really fearful of the fact. I think if you can hold that power in, in and of yourself and kind of do it whatever you need to and figure out how to make it however you do is really important. It's a roundabout way of answering I think I asked that last part because I think it's something that I do think is missing now is a general understanding that transformational artwork is actually supposed to be the norm. It was normal. I think it was always normal for artists to move and explore different ideas with the same unifying language through their careers. And Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have probably any of the great art that we have if it weren't for artists who were, um, you know, either maligned for it, uh, depending on when they were working or uh, congratulated for it, usually maligned, I guess. But yeah, I, I suppose if you I suppose if you look like, you know, talking about the maligneness, you could you could you could look at two uh, painters of the late. 19th early 20th century you know look at van gogh and look at mirandi mm-hmm. you know van gogh couldn't sell a painting to save himself right and now he's in every every single um telephone book that you buy to write your friend's contact phone numbers in if you go down to your local paper shop to get it mm-hmm. the same thing with 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 monet and and picasso and Braque. you know they they were born out of derision, and now they seem to be the most important moments uh, in the in the history of 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 kind of thinking about visuality and and, and art. Um, you know, Monet was the impressionist because he painted with the wrong end of the brush, and mm-hmm. Braque was the cubist because he reduced everything to cubes. Now, those were things that were made up by critics. Those two ways of describing those works were, were made up by critics who derided them. And Mirandi was. You know, he had his his room was behind his sister's room, and nobody was allowed to come through to see what he was doing unless they passed through his sister's room. You know, mm-hmm. so he was kind of removed completely from the world, but he was so focused on his own process and 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 what it was he was trying to accomplish. And I think absolutely, I think there's a th- like you're saying there's a thirst. I think there's a kind of thirst to be the next big thing, the next amazing thing that's coming along, and who can do the next cool thing? You know. With, with whatever it is. I, I'm actually more of a, a person who goes, how slow can I make this process? Mm. Um, how can I slow it down? 
how can I how can I remove that feeling or need to have something finished and something finished and something finished? And we talked a little bit about time um, earlier, and I'm really, really in, in uh, like invested in that idea of time and process of time. When you look at a painting, it's a condensed moment of something that has included all of the different things that have occurred in the life of that maker as they've been making it. Mm-hmm. You see it, you know, people say they look at a work of art, it's like three seconds. You'll get it. You watch people walking through a gallery. They walk in a direction and they turn their head to the side and they carry on past, you know, or they might stop and they might look at it. They've got that three-second moment, but that's a condensed moment of time of everything that occurred during the process of making that painting. Mm. Now, we talked a little bit about giving up painting before, and I was going to, t- to talk about a, 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 a painter, another painter, a guy called Luke Toymans. I'm sure you're aware of Luke Toymans' work. Sure. He, gave mm-hmm. up, he gave up painting as well. He, you know, he had a show, his first show. He invited a thousand people and only one person turned up. He put all his works, he hung all his works in the, a disused swimming pool, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolute failure, abject failure. But he realized painting wasn't doing the thing for him that he wanted it to do until he started making film. And then when he made film, he recognized that the film was made up at 24 frames a second or whatever it was that he was running through the the, 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 the machine at the time, just do 24 frames a second. And he realized that painting was looking at a thousand frames and choosing the one that yeah, was most yeah, important. Yeah. And it's the same thing. We only ever see that one, but there's a thousand other things Mm-hmm. however many on either side of that that influence what it is that you you're doing as a painter and that's that's what I'm most interested in those thousand other things the yeah. one thing that comes out at the end is just the, the residue of that and I know if you've looked at any of if you've looked at any of my most recent work they're always this is a painting that could be done this way and then this is a painting that could be done that way and they're condensed in the same moment of time they're painted over the top of something else. There's always a painting that's painted over and then painting over and painted over again. There's that residue of time in that moment. That's what I'm, that's what I'm most interested in. They might look nice. Uh, they might be aesthetically pleasing, but that's secondary to what it is that I want to do with work. I gotcha. And I suppose, I suppose that, um, that it, I'm in a privileged and lucky position because I don't have to, I don't have to fight for every penny because I, I work in a salaried position. Yeah. I get to, I get to, uh, you know, teach the thing that I like doing anyways. I get, you know, I, I have a, I have a privileged position and I, and I acknowledge that, but it gives me the, it gives me the, it gives me the ability to just enjoy the things that I want to do selfishly. It's important. Yeah. yeah. However you get there, uh, it's a good place to be. Mm. Michael, let's, um, Let's move on to uh, Studio Notes now, the last part of the episode. Studio Notes, Studio Notes, Studio Notes. Okay, and we're back. And so I'm going to start because my Studio Note actually has a lot to do with the conversation we were just having. Um, I think on the last episode I was discussing... um, losing this sense of urgency which is eating me up inside when a painting is taking longer than it should or than i want it to uh you know i feel like i'm walking through molasses in in the studio and i bring that home that 
residue of that. And I just feel like I'm in the midst of a ongoing panic attack that painting's not happening quick enough. My studio note this week is about, it's not really a new technique and it's not groundbreaking or anything, but I've, I've actually, I've been refocusing on as though to like uh, poke salt in the wound of this problem. I've just been experimenting entirely on a different piece of canvas, working on new tools and new methods of making the marks that I will eventually bring to the canvas. It's, it's like I challenged myself to, um, things were going slow. And I said to myself, not slow enough. Like it, mm. it, I have gone to this crawl and it is uh, a bit uncomfortable still. Um, but I left the studio the other day with, you know, two rough rips of canvas stapled on a wall that I had, you know, really played with, you know, not with that. It's a very different intensity and psychology that goes into uh, experiments, technical experiments than the painting. And I'm really glad that this journey has taken me there from the panic and the urgency to this snail's pace where I'm making discoveries and they will eventually be part of the painting. And it's, I mean, if anything, it's also to steal your lines. I feel like the time of this painting is shifting too now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's maybe there's going to be something that happens on it tomorrow that happens very quickly. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe it'll have uh, this residual uh, uh, lengthy backstory, you know, behind it. These experiments, mm. like it's if you repeat a line again and again and again, and then that final output is that one line. Is it that one line, or is it the history of all of the lines before it? So I'm I'm uh, pretty excited about a couple days of pure experimentation. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm going to add to that because that last little thing you said is something I did did myself um, a number of years ago now. Um, and it's almost like verbatim for what you've just described, but it was something that was really important in terms of a change of process of the way that I was making work. I just returned from Berlin. I had a show at a, at a public art gallery uh, made from the the – experimentation or the research, the research that I was doing in, in Berlin at the time. So it comprised of a, a suite of paintings. There were seven or eight large paintings. They were like 1.87 by 1.4 meters mm. uh, in portrait. And they were, um, they were based on an idea of an, an operable community. So where you have a, you have a, a group of a group of people, let's say, a group of people who are in in a position of power, and you have a, a subculture who feel like they don't have a voice, and they start aping the 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 culture and their dress and in their 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 words or their visions, and there's a kind of a shift, a, a, a minute shift that occurs. Then the subculture becomes the culture, and so on and so forth. And I was trying to understand this this process, and I was getting really stuck on it, and I started going well. How is that? How is that just a good life? <laughs> how do I how do I justify a good life? And um, and a friend of mine who was a sculptor, or she 
she's not a sculptor. She's a more of a, a process artist. She challenged me to, to do a body of work for her um, that turned out to be a diary of a good life, which was a really beautiful way of shifting my process of being stuck in this moment of trying to figure out something that I was doing for a show that was going to be working and do something completely different. And so that process meant that I had to take a number of fixed variables and and use those as a beginning starting process. And I had to find a window and I had to find a marker pen and I had to find a piece of paper. And every day I had to make, I think at the stage I was 34 years old, uh, so I had to make 33 lines on this window pane with marker pen to describe the thing that I could see outside. So I'd be tracing what it was outside this 33 lines. Huh. And then the third, and then the 34th line I had to put on the paper. And that was the, that was the, the condensation of all this looking, the most important line. And I had to do that for 34 days. I love that. And it was a diary of a good life. So at the end of the time, my window was covered in 33 lines times 34. So completely covered in lines. And I was always having to look for that smaller piece, that tinier, tinier bit of stuff that I hadn't looked at. So I was, you know, firstly, it was the whatever was outside. It might have been a natural scene or a building or whatever, depending on where I was in the day. In my studio, it was an urban scene. Uh, at home, it was my garden. And so I started to map out the really large things. And by the end of those 34 days, I was down to the, the absolute minute. I was looking so deeply and so closely at what was going on. And it kind of it kind of mimicked that transition from what I was working on in the show progress from culture to subculture in that shift was large or grand idea to really, really tight and, and focused idea. Cool. And so I've taken that on board with me as I go through with my studio process when I kind of get ahead of myself and what I'm doing in studio I remember a diary of a good life I remember to go well it's just like painting you know it's large block and areas of color with a large brush down to the details now it happens in one painting but it has to happen in every part of that one painting at the same time <laughs> it's a process way of working that's my studio note I love it I think that that is an ingenious way to um yeah like a secondary mode in the studio it's uh poetic too i dig it michael <laughs> cheers dude no yeah and it, well i suppose just as a, an addition to that i look at i look at the um how it's how it's impacted the way that i think about making now if i think about the most recent body of work that i'm that i'm building i've got a show in melbourne australia in november um which is like the first international show that I've had since pre prior to COVID. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm building a body of work and the, the title of the work is Sullivan's Objects. And Sullivan is, uh, he's, an, he's like an old turn for me. I've taken on a, uh, another person's identity essentially to make this body of work. It's, hmm. It gives me the freedom to kind of make whatever it is that I want to in, in a process. Cool. And so, so in Sullivan's objects, there's a sense of of a, a really deep looking at something, and then a destruction and a shifting in a moment of remembering that thing at the same time. So that studio process of Diary of a Good Life that I did when I was 34, some years ago now, um, is is re is reemerging and reimagining itself into this this body of work, which is 
you know, going to come out in, in November, hopefully. Hopefully. Very cool. Uh, I'm uh, legit looking forward to to seeing that, especially. Well, I think it it just sounds like a shift, and I, I love artists in shifting moments. I think it's it sounds cool. But, mm. um, Michael, that that's all I got for you. I really appreciate you being on Art Matters. And b- before I let you go, uh, please tell the listeners. Um, how they can find your work and like you just mentioned any upcoming shows that um, that you want to uh, you want to talk about cool so um, you can find my musings I suppose my daily musings my shadow finds my um, collecting colors all those sorts of things that I do in a, in a, in a process way on Instagram for sure and that's uh, Michael underscore J underscore Greaves mm-hmm. um, and my website, michaelgreaves.com, uh, that's just been updated with a recent show that I had uh, called The Promise in the Fall mm-hmm. um, here in Dunedin. Um, there's a, a catalogue that's associated with that that has some uh, interview um, interview material, forward and a, an academic essay that kind of uh, position the, the process of the work in that most recent recent show. Um, but the next show that I have is in November uh, in Melbourne, Australia, at a gallery called Five Walls Gallery in Footscray. Um, that's coming up in, in November, opening on November the 4th, I think. And then in Auckland uh, at my dealer next year, uh, date yet to be confirmed, at Melanie Roger Gallery in, in Auckland. Um, but, yeah, so it's just with the limited time I get in the studio, I've got to produce uh, – a, a massive amount of work <laughs> for sure well at least you have the uh history of um you know you've been through this before you know you uh, oh, yeah yeah no, yeah it's not my first rodeo exactly exactly <laughs> um michael thanks again it was lovely to talk to you and great to reconnect cheers isaac thank you very much that was my conversation with michael greaves if you want to find michael's work Uh, Check out the episode description. You'll find a link to his Instagram and website. You can find more of my work on my website at isaacman.com, spelled with two A's and two N's, or on Instagram at isaac.man. If you have any questions you have for or about the podcast, please shoot me an email. And uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, do tell your friends. All right. Have a good week. I'll talk to you again soon. That's the show. It's over now. That's the show. It's over now. Art Matters Podcast will be back next week, so tune in then for more great stuff.